Pros Say, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back. And Haley Knoth. Hey, Amber and Alex. What's up? Busy news week. I do want to preview a chat I have uh, that's coming up for listeners a little bit later in the show with Britton Eakin, who is our senior immigration reporter. Longtime listeners know that I used to cover immigration and love talking about it, and there's a good reason this week. A big asylum policy that the Biden administration had been forwarding has gotten halted in court. And so we break down exactly what happened, what that policy was, where we stand now, and kind of what's moving forward. So this is a big one, both for migrants seeking asylum and also a bunch of border cities along the southern border. Greatly looking forward to that. Britain uh, is crushing that beat. Happy to have her on. We do want to start with a court ruling, a court decision that has gotten much of the big law community quite spooked. A D.C. federal judge this week ordered the big law powerhouse Covington and Burling to reveal to the government seven of its clients that were caught up in a cyber attack on the firm. Now, the decision in this case turns on a very kind of fact-intensive and fact-specific investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission, which deals with potential insider trading. But the reason that we're talking about it on the show this week is that this decision has caught the attention of most of the legal world, and specifically the corporate defense bar, as what they see as a potential threat to the very foundations of attorney and client privilege. So, It's quite an interesting ruling with many ramifications. I mean, honestly, you don't even really have to explain to us or the listeners about why firms would be nervous about this. It's pretty obvious on the face of it that turning over your client list is tricky business. But uh, I know we talked about this before. Maybe we can do just a little refresh of some of the facts here. Yeah, we did break down the full scope of this dispute back. That was uh, episode 281, if you want to go back through the logs. That was back in January. We broke down every kind of angle of how this dispute came to be. But to just catch back up on the basics here, Covington and Burling revealed in an SEC filing a couple years ago that it was victimized by a 2020 cyber attack that the U.S. government has since attributed to Chinese hackers that were attempting to glean information about the priorities of the incoming Biden administration. And that's not really a surprise. Covington, like a lot of prominent big law firms, does employ a pretty deep bench of former government officials as lawyers there. But in the wake of the firm disclosing that it had been subject to this attack, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, probed a little bit further. And that agency is investigating whether the information that was captured in this cyber attack was used either for insider trading or for other securities violations. And in the course of that investigation, the SEC asked Covington to identify just by just they they just asked for the names of the 300 or so clients whose information was swept up in this cyber attack. Covington refused to comply with this subpoena from the SEC. And as I indicated already, the basis of their opposition was that They viewed this as a threat to client privilege, and they argued that they shouldn't subject their clients to government scrutiny without evidence of them doing anything wrong. And they quickly gained a lot of allies, I want to point out, as this case kind of quickly churned through D.C. federal court 
83 big law, like serious big law powerhouses in the United States filed an, am- an, uh, an amicus brief, basically urging the judge to turn away the SEC's subpoena request. So what began as, you know, an, an investigation relating to a cyber attack quickly turned into what for much of the industry was like an existential threat. Very interesting stuff. 83, that is, uh, that's quite a number there. It's almost, I mean, it's rare that that many high-powered attorneys would agree on anything. I was, And they all yes. lined up to, to get on this side of the issue. It's very impressive. So what did the judge have to say after hearing from all of these firms about this? Yeah, that's, that's what brings us uh, to the table this week. Uh, D.C. federal judge Amit Mehta, he took a kind of a measured approach. As you can imagine, both the SEC was arguing about how Im- important it was for them to get this information. And as we firmly established here, Covington specifically and other law firms generally were saying very important that they not get this information. The judge, Amit Mehta, took a little bit of a measured approach. He ordered Covington to disclose just seven of its clients to the SEC, which is far narrower than what the agency had been seeking. The agency, as I said, had been asking for 300 uh, client names. Now, the reason those seven clients were identified is that the, the firm had set them aside as having their material non-public information extracted during this hacking incident. As you can imagine, there's lots of stuff that was swept up that is not particularly sensitive at all or not of interest to this or any government. But key to the judge's analysis here is that the SEC is only seeking, at this point at least, the names of these clients as it pokes around for securities violations or whatever else they want to pursue. And that under this subpoena, the substance of the firm's communications with its clients would remain out of the agency's purview. So basically what the judge is saying here is that the firm's communications and the discussions it has with clients is obviously privileged, but the fact that it just did communicate with clients and who those clients are is not privileged. Here was, I think, a, um, a pretty clean quote from the judge's opinion. Covington's disclosure of a client name would tell the SEC nothing about what, if any, legal advice the client sought or how the firm responded with respect to the cyber attack. So he is drawing a pretty clear line there. And then he also did allow that, you know, disclosing these names could allow the SEC to probe further and maybe ask more information of Covington if this investigation gave rise to any evidence of impropriety. But that's not before him right now. And he's just saying that, yes, Covington, you should at least disclose the names of these clients to the government. Okay, so we had more than 80 prestigious big firms worried enough to sign on to the amicus brief. Did this measured approach allay some of their fears? What's been the reaction? Yeah, there are a couple different layers to parse out here. And and like I say, I mean, he, the judge very clearly took the amicus brief to heart and kind of just tried to, as I say, draw a line between, first of all, the number is reduced from, again, 300 clients to just seven clients uh, now under the umbrella of the subpoena. But I think this is kind of an interesting kind of flashpoint for the industry here, because while the number of clients that are being kind of unmasked here, at least to the government, is certainly important to Covington, they'd rather have fewer and not more. 
that doesn't really assuage the fears of big law because they care that even one name has to be disclosed. And they see that, and they made that clear in their writing, that you know, allowing this subpoena to go forward would open a new door for the government to basically snoop around in their business and in the interactions with their clients. Now, we don't know yet if Covington will appeal, but our own Jessica Corso did a great job covering this and we'll link to her story like we do every week uh, for, the, for the stories we cover. But attorneys who Jessica talked to seem to think that the firm would probably face a pretty steep climb if it were to continue fighting this. And there's just a lot of push and pull. And one of the attorneys that you know Jessica talked to said that the firm is likely happy with only needing to turn over this small number of clients. And, you know, they may, they may decide that it's not a fight worth pursuing on principle rather than act as an advocate for the entire legal industry and just kind of move on with this. So it will be interesting to see whether the sort of overall inertia of big law, you know, pushes them to appeal or if they're happy to just take this partial win and move on. But uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating case that we'll definitely keep our eyes on. Let's turn now to a big decision that came down from the full 11th Circuit recently. The en banc court recently held that a single unwarranted text message is enough to establish standing under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. And this is interesting because it's a departure from existing 11th Circuit precedent and it sets a much lower bar for, you know, any plaintiff to sue under the TCPA, which a lot of uh, consumers are out here suing under that exact law. Yeah, we're talking about like robo-texts here, right? Yes. I mean, this is sort of yeah. the... Robo-texts, robo-calls. There's a variety of communications that are covered under this law. Sure. And so this obviously creates a big headache for companies like GoDaddy.com, which is um, the company that had been sued that that got us here to this decision. GoDaddy had urged the court to uphold its 2019 ruling, holding that standing can't be established unless the volume of unwarranted texts is enough to be, quote, highly offensive to the ordinary reasonable man. I don't know any ordinary and reasonable men, <laughs> though, and that's including myself. So I don't know how you would begin to articulate such a standard. <laughs> but anyway. Yep. And it's yeah. also interesting because I don't know, like 2019 wasn't that long ago in terms of the legal landscape. So this was kind of a quick change of heart from the circuit. I mean, some judges maybe got a single really annoying uh, <laughs> yeah. unwanted text from well, during the companies. pandemic. It might have gone up too. everybody's housebound. I don't know. They were <laughs> seizing on that. I don't know. Well, True. let's actually get into the underlying case because I do think that matters. I mean, a lot of this, again, is pretty fact specific, especially when the old standard used to be. It has to be enough to be offensive to the reasonable man. So what what actually Right. Happened? All right. So bear with me here because the uh, how we got here, there are a few twists and turns. Um, so a nationwide class of consumers accused GoDaddy of violating the TCPA and then ultimately reached a $35 million settlement with the company. This class was defined as all individuals in the U.S. who received a call or text message from GoDaddy between November 2014 and November 2016. So then, in 2019, the 11th Circuit ruled that a single unwanted text message wasn't sufficiently concrete injury, couldn't give rise to Article 3 standing, 
So that's where the 11th Circuit stands on this. But the district court still signed off on the settlement because it said, well, there are class members who lived outside of the 11th Circuit and they would have viable claims in their respective circuits because a bunch of other circuits are like, nah, just one text is enough. That's fine. So then, after all of that, the Supreme Court handed down a decision finding that every class member must have Article Three standing to recover damages. So that undid this deal. And that's when an 11th Circuit panel vacated the settlement. And now we get to this en banc review of the panel's decision. I hope that made any sense. No, it's it a lot did. of it twists did. and turns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I and the intervention of the Supreme Court is kind of the, you know, we already mentioned that it is kind of a quick turnaround. But if you do get sort of more direction from the high court, you do see some scrambling from the lower circuits on stuff like this. I'm very intrigued by this case because it's something that like, I mean, we all deal with it. I kind of just offhandedly referred to it as a, you know, as a robo text and we've all gotten them spam text, spam calls, whatever it is. But the idea that you, especially on a massive action, a class action, you have to say like, well, how annoyed were you really? And if, it's, yeah. if it really is just one text that I didn't want to see, then that's enough um, is fascinating to me. So you already kind of caught us up here. What exactly, again, this is, we're talking kind of the, the numerology of consumer protection law and how, and, and like how abundant the, the offense must be. What were the parties arguing on appeal here now that they went back to the en banc? GoDaddy, of course, wants, wanted, I should say, that 2019 decision affirmed it argued that the, quote, mere annoyance and inconvenience of getting one unwanted text message does not constitute the kind of harm that confers standing in federal court. But on the other hand, the consumers argued, hey, every other circuit basically except the 11th already recognizes standing for anyone who's gotten a single call, text, or fax, whatever. And Congress explicitly stated that harm from unwanted messages supports a claim for damages. And the full 11th Circuit ultimately agreed. It pointed to those other circuit courts holdings in similar cases. It said that seven of the circuits have declined to, to get kind of into what you were saying, Alex, the, the numerology here. They're like, yeah. that's, that's not for us. We can say that, you know, just getting one at all that resembles the kind of harm associated with, quote, intrusion upon seclusion. And that's what, uh, you know, Congress intended with, with this law. It's easier for them to make it a binary, right? To just say, yes. like, if you break the law or if you send one infringing thing, then that's enough. Rather than be like, okay, well, how busy was I when I got these texts and should have been reading other texts? So, I mean, you can see how they don't want to it's more weedy to say like, okay, you need five texts that you don't want or you need to be under a sufficient amount of duress when you get seven texts from them or something. So like making yeah. it more binary is clearly the route they went here. They were like, it, it was interesting. They talked about this quite at length at oral arguments and the yeah. judges were like, okay, so where do we draw the line here? What if someone gets one text per day sure. for 300 days or something? <laughs> or what if someone gets like 10 texts in one day? What's the difference here? Yeah. 
regardless of how this got sorted, I do love the idea of incorporating intrusion upon seclusion just into the personal laws that dictate my life. I don't want any intrusion (laughs) upon my seclusion either. But what does this ultimately all mean? Does this just line up the prevailing wisdom about how the TCPA operates or is there more fallout to be expected? It does do exactly that, but there is there there are still some uh, some remaining battles to be fought here. So the big takeaway, of course, is that this issue of standing is now mostly harmonized in the federal court. And that's, like I said earlier, going to make it a lot easier for plaintiffs to go after companies that use automated text and call marketing, which, again, very popular, very rampant. common. Rampant, yes, one could say. Um, I did hear from one attorney who specializes in the TCPA, and he said the big fight is now actually going to shift to Florida state court because there is a precedent there. There's an appellate ruling stating that there is no standing for this type of circumstance. So I think, you know, perhaps that will make its way up to the, the Supreme Court of Florida or we'll see some changes in precedent there. We just have to keep watching. This week, a California federal judge found a controversial Biden administration asylum policy unlawful. The judge made it clear that the executive branch can't restrict where and how migrants seek asylum. The ruling will have significant impacts on asylum seekers and border cities alike. Here to discuss the ruling and what to expect next is our senior immigration reporter, Britton Egan. Britton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I want to get into this ruling and what it means, but I think before we even do that, for people that aren't following the area of immigration, can you tell us about the policy at issue here. What was the Biden administration trying to do? So the policy at issue is just sort of one piece of the Biden administration's larger approach to how it was trying to manage the border. And what the rule did basically was impose conditions, essentially, on the ability to seek asylum. So you are presumed ineligible for asylum under the rule unless... You schedule an appointment to arrive at a port of entry using the CBP-1 app, which is a government app. Um, you have to download it on a smartphone. Um, or if you, you would have to show that you applied for asylum in a country that you transited through on the way to the border and were denied. There were exceptions. Um, for example, it didn't apply to unaccompanied minors. And if you were having some kind of really compelling, urgent situation, like a dire health emergency, or there was immediate threat to your life or safety, you could overcome the presumption of ineligibility. Otherwise, you were presumed ineligible. And the idea behind that was that a lot of asylum seekers, it's what they call irregular immigration. Like the government can't really plan for it. You don't know how many surges there will be. So This was kind of a move to make that a more standardized, regularized type process, right? Yeah. So I think the Biden administration has described it as trying to create a more orderly process. Um, And part of that was opening up other pathways for people to come to the U.S. without just showing up unannounced at the border. So the administration um, 
in the last uh, year or two has created some programs under the executive branch's parole authority, which allows certain nationalities to come in on a temporary basis um, and they get work authorization during that time. And um, the administration created one such program for Venezuelans last year and then expanded it in January to Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans. Those were some of the nationalities that were showing up at the border in larger numbers. And so after they implemented this program, they saw a drop in the number of migrants from those countries coming to the border. Um, But that program obviously is limited in scope um, and not open to all nationalities. But the administration has tried to open up opportunities like that um, as part of its larger effort. They also started um, a parole program for family reunification. Uh, They're opening up regional processing centers in Colombia, Guatemala, Costa Rica, where folks can be screened for refugee admission for one of the parole programs. Canada and Spain have said they may take some of these referrals as well. So there's, there's kind of a larger plan in place. And this asylum rule was just one component of that. I'm glad you put that in perspective because I've seen a lot of sort of blaring headlines that this is the Biden administration's way of continuing the same trajectory and same plan that the Trump administration had had. And I think that's maybe a bit misleading. So it is good to sort of separate out. We do have a bigger agenda here. This was one portion of it that's gotten a lot of attention. But I do want to focus on some of that attention and and have us talk about this case. So how did we get into court over this particular asylum policy? Well, it's funny that you mentioned the Trump administration because the uh, groups who won um, vacator of the rule this week, the ACLU, the National Immigrant Justice Center, and the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies, um, they promised to sue immediately as soon as the rule was announced. Uh, they said if it, the final version of it looked like what the proposed rule looked like and there wasn't a lot of difference between them, that they would go to court right away because they said it basically uh, recycled Trump era policies that had already been deemed unlawful. And that is in essence what the judge found. Yeah, I want to dig into the judge's order here. So they said these policies are unlawful. So maybe we can start with that before we get to the judge's ruling. What did they argue made this policy unlawful? Um, So The Trump administration tried several different ways of limiting asylum. Um, They were barring asylum to folks who were crossing in between ports of entry, and they also tried to require um, non-citizens to seek asylum in a transit country on the way to the U.S. border. And both of those measures were deemed unlawful. Yeah, just to be clear, Britain, that's where people have, have you know, to kind of boil it down to the common language around it. When you say transit country, it, it it's the, hey, if you come up through Mexico, apply for asylum in Mexico. You're not allowed to apply in the U.S. unless you've tried that first. Yes. And for people coming from South America, you know, there are other countries along the way that they could potentially um, seek asylum in. But yeah, that's, that's the idea behind it. You've got to try in one of these other countries that you set foot in before you get to the border. Um, so those measures were deemed unlawful, uh, previously, um, for the same reasons, essentially that the judge found Biden's rule unlawful. Congress didn't put those kind of limits on asylum and the executive branch doesn't have the authority to put those kind of limits on, on asylum. Only Congress can do that. Yeah. Putting on my nerd hat, this is the kind of ruling that I think is very interesting to parse because 
it's not really about the policy itself. It's about who has the power to enact this policy. So the judge basically said, hey, this is Congress's gig. Stay out of here, Biden administration. Why did the administration think they had this authority if they'd already seen the example of, of Trump and his administration having trouble with policies that are in many ways are similar? So I think what the administration said uh, about the rule and, and why, how they tried to differentiate it from Trump's policies is they said, look, we have created all of these other pathways um, that people can use. It's not a categorical bar on asylum. And during the hearing, the summary judgment motion hearing um, about a week ago, a little more, um, the judge said, you know, that that is kind of the most salient feature of this rule is that it isn't a categorical bar. So it seemed like he was really chewing on that and trying to digest that. Um, But at the end of the day, what the judge said is, look, you know, you can restrict asylum in some ways that has to be compliant with the law. And in order for you to say that some folks have to first seek asylum in another country, those countries have to be safe. Um, And he said the record evidence showed that the countries um, that migrants would be transiting through to show up at the southern border really aren't safe. Um, And so that part of the rule doesn't comply with the law. The Biden administration had tried to argue, hey, some of these countries are safer now, maybe not completely safe, but, you know, relatively safe, safe enough. Conditions have changed this isn't, you know, 2018. Uh, it's not the same context as, you know, the Trump era regulations were. Things are different. But the judge said, not really. Uh, it, he wasn't persuaded. That's really interesting because it gets so fact specific at that point. Like just how safe are some other countries that have traditionally had a lot of violence and upheaval? So that's very interesting here. So that gives us the contours of the ruling and where we are now. I'm interested in some of the fallout, basically. Has the policy already stopped or are we um, in a gray period? Is there going to be an appeal? What happens next? So the judge issued a 14-day stay of the order to give the government a chance to appeal. And the DOJ literally filed a notice of appeal like two hours after the ruling came down and broadcast very loudly and clearly that nothing has changed Um, I think there is some concern from the administration that, uh, you know, there's going to be a movement uh, of people toward the border. And so they've been saying very clearly the rule is still in place. There are still consequences. Do not, you know, do not believe the lies of smugglers, I think, were the words that Homeland uh, Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas used in a statement after the ruling came down. The DOJ also rarely issues um, public comments on pending litigation, but did so. Oh, Uh, that is really interesting because they give us all the time at Law 360 the classic, we don't comment on pending litigation. So what did they have to say? They had a comment this time and um, they are going to vigorously defend uh, the rule at the Ninth Circuit. They've asked for an emergency stay pending the outcome of the appeal. So they want the rule to remain in place while the appellate process plays out. That's always a nesting doll of stays of different stays and and where are we now? So for right now, nothing on the ground has changed, but we are seeing this continue in the courts and it's going to keep you pretty busy, Britain, like following the rest of this. In the meantime, as you've spoken to immigration attorneys, 
Do they have opinions about what should happen next? I mean, should the Biden administration be fighting to keep this policy or does the immigration bar have a sense that maybe they should change tactics here? There's a very strong sense that the administration should change tactics, should accept the defeat and reverse course and really put more effort into uh, rebuilding the asylum system rather than trying to put limits on who and where and how folks can seek asylum. There's not a lot of optimism uh, that that will happen, but that is the hope. Uh, from the immigration attorneys who I've spoken to. Uh, But I think the administration has made very clear, it believes that this rule is lawful. It's going to fight, I think, very, um, very hard uh, to keep the rule alive to the best of its ability. Um, So we'll have to see how it plays out. But I think um, the general sense is that all of these other pathways the administration has created are, are viewed as really positive and they should be built upon. Um, but there's a real sense from folks in the immigration community that this ruling was correct, that it's in accordance with the law, um, and that the Biden administration was breaking the law by implementing the rule. That's a really interesting place for us to leave it, where uh, there's some dissatisfaction about what's going on with this and that a sense that maybe there should be a new tactic, but sort of a broad admission that perhaps the administration did get a little over its skis in this one. Britton, thanks so much for coming on to explain this to us today. I will look forward to your further coverage. Thank you so much for having me. We like to end our show with something offbeat and in Prose's never-ending quest to burrow deep and find the legal hook for any piece of pop cultural ephemera, we are here to talk about the legal intricacies, ins and outs of Barbie and Oppenheimer, the movie event of the year and in our case, the legal news podcasting segment of the week. Haley, are you excited? I'm very excited. I'm addicted to the discourse. Yeah. So we, you and I both rushed out. We have seen both. I will add a little spoiler warning here. If you've not seen the movies and you don't want to be spoiled, turn this right on off. We'll see you later. Yeah, we, I mean, this is the end of the show. Anyhow, and also, if you don't want to be spoiled, you're in good company. Amber is not with us for this segment. And uh, producer... Kelly is recording the segment. However, he has logged off. He has no idea what I'm saying right now. Yeah. We, are, we are flying the plane ourselves. And, and to Haley's point, we're going to talk about some things that happen in these movies. And I don't think it's like too integral to what happens in them. But if you just want nothing to, like if you want to know nothing and you haven't seen them yet, turn it off uh, and come back when you've seen them. I loved both films. I really thought they were both tremendously successful in their own I, ways. Yeah, um, same. That's just kind of my very short letterboxed review. But, you know, we're here to talk about, no one's here for like the takes, but we can give them later, I suppose. Um, I wanted to talk about both movies do involve a good bit of kind of legal plot machination or formulation or however you want to say it. I wanted to start with Oppenheimer. 
um, because that is a little bit on the drier side, obviously. And yes. also it's based in history. And so the depiction of some of this stuff was very interesting to me. So also before yeah. we get into that, go ahead. Alex, what do you think now that you've seen them, what is the appropriate order of viewing? Is it oh. Oppenheimer then Barbie or Barbie then Oppenheimer? I did Oppenheimer Friday night, Barbie Saturday night. And I think that that is in that order is the only way to do it. I mean, yeah. I think you do, you, you get the very heavy stuff and then you got a palate cleanser. Um, although that's not to under understate the like emotional impact of Barbie. It is a, oh, it, yes. it, it is a movie with serious ideas, but it's definitely more fun. And so, oh, yeah. uh, so, so that's, that's how I look at it. But with Oppenheimer, first of all, this is, of course, I think most people know this is the true story of the scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer, who invented the atomic bomb. And the movie, directed by Christopher Nolan, basically frames the story through the prism of two government hearings that take place many years after the Manhattan Project wrapped. One is a Senate confirmation hearing, and another is this kind of uh, national security, like bureaucratic review of Oppenheimer's security clearance. And when I watched it, it really reminded me a lot of The Social Network, which is another movie, like a prestige drama that has legal tendrils, but is not like anyone's idea of a legal movie. That movie yeah. deals with kind of a similar framing device that deals with two depositions that happen after the fact and flash back to the main timeline. The main thing that I took away in in a, from a legal perspective from Oppenheimer is that there are multiple times in the movie where characters go to great lengths to say that what we are seeing is in fact not a trial and that yes. it doesn't, it in fact is being kept out of the public eye in a way that a trial would not. There are lawyer, uh, Oppenheimer's lawyer is like very, a very forceful advocate, but is ultimately powerless uh, in the sort of grind of the national security complex to really do anything. Uh, what were your thoughts, Haley? Yeah, I loved this this device. I was a little confused at the beginning as to what the meetings even were. Yeah. Which I'm sure was intentional. But yeah, I loved seeing how they portrayed those board members and just how like fruitless it all felt. Yeah. To just be Oppenheimer sitting on the, the receiving end there. And then there was a fun little twist too with the um with the confirmation hearing. That was Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. That was uh the I don't know if this is a spoiler worth stating. So We we already did it. It's fine. But I really appreciated that Rami Malik just shows up. Yeah. And then you're like, "Why is he here?" Yes. And then just drops the bomb in that confirmation hearing. Not I'm the like, actual right. bomb. That happens like 45 oh, yeah, minutes sorry. before. But um yeah. <laughs> Uh, th yeah, really cool use of when I walked out of it with the people I saw it with, I sort of, I don't want to be too caught up in the moment or whatever, but it's kind of a great DC movie. It really gets you kind of caught up in the like, you know, just like the kind of weird, like quasi bureaucratic stuff yeah. like behind closed doors that nobody sees that actually shapes so much of history, which we know intuitively, but this depicts it in a really interesting way. Also, a little bit of uh, some trade law with A-Law in there as there is a key plot point that turns on the policy and legal questions of exporting isotopes to Norway. Oh, which that's I, right. Which I really appreciated. Uh, that is some like definite like Cold War uh, national security trade lawmaking. Uh, so that was interesting to me. We don't want to belabor the point here. Uh, 
it's a it's an awesome movie. I would definitely recommend everybody see it. Let's turn to Barbie now. Um, I kind of had the floor for a long time on Oppenheimer. Uh, Haley, as a legal news podcaster, yeah, what were your views on Barbie? Well, I very much appreciated the Barbie Supreme Court, which they yes. had a a really funny line. I think kind of at the end where they're discussing maybe adding a Ken to the Supreme Court. And, <laughs> yeah. and ultimately, they all say, eh, I don't know, that's a bit too much, but maybe in one of the lower circuit courts, we can yes. have a Ken. Oh and I God. loved that. I, I loved laughed. It. I laughed a little too hard. I'm sure you did too. Oh, yeah. I, like, I think <laughs> it, it hit home a little harder for us. Um, a little too eager legal reporter brain going on there in that screening. Um I also, yes. yeah, I mean, the Barbie Supreme Court is sort of generally what we're here to talk about with regard to Barbie. I also really appreciated the central kind of conflict of the movie involves a radicalization of the men, the, the, the Kens of Barbie world. Yes. So when they come back and the men are now ruling, when Barbie sees the Supreme Court uh, cheerleading a volleyball game, she's like, that's the Supreme Court over there. That's a little weird. <laughs> Very interesting to me. Um the uh, also they one of the main conflicts of the movie centers around this insurgent legislative effort, which I thought was interesting. Yes. I mean, that is sort of the in this fantastical land, you know, you need to pin it to something definitive, and it was basically it all turns on this idea of like changing the constitution of Barbie Land. When, which, when you see it, you'll understand it a little bit further. Yeah, which happens because Ken has been radicalized by uh, what was it seeing. Seeing that men are into horses and Rocky and uh, Sylvester Stallone, there uh, yes, and and other things. Uh, I'm by the way. Did you you're, you're in L.A. How well did the Century City jokes play? Just tell oh, me. people fantastically. Must have been, people fantastically. must have been dying. Yeah, I laughed even, and I'm and I live in New York. But anyway, yeah. no, we loved it. The, the other thing, loved it. yeah, I'm sure. The other thing um, at at the risk of going too long here, there were also. Um, and this is kind of my only kind of beef with Barbie a little bit, which was kind of unavoidable. There were a lot of like wry and knowing nods to Mattel, the company that makes Barbie, its own legal battles and some legal headaches and kind of like failures of corporate governance in the past. And like, that's fine. But like, it was all so, like, since Mattel's like a producer on the movie, it, it kind of just was like, Hey, we're in on the joke too, but you know, yeah, that that was kind of the price of admission with this thing. So it's it fine. was, it didn't land for me. But I, like you said, I get it, I get it. Yeah, but well, yeah. anyway, we I, I think we've already tipped our hands a little bit, but just to kind of put a button on it, it seems like we liked both of the movies. Do we? What's your opinion on how they, uh, sort of as a collective, tackle the legal system? Oh man. I think they, you know, they both showcase the flaws very well <laughs> yes. and, and different flaws, you know? Yeah. I liked, uh, I liked how both handled it in, in very different ways, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, well, one is based on a true story and one is a fantasy. And I did like that both were able to, there, there was a bit of convergence about the shortcomings of the legal structures we've put in place. And then also sometimes they work exactly as they're intended, for better or worse. But um, Anyway, uh, a great time at the movies and uh, would definitely recommend uh, everybody check him out. Absolutely fantastic. I will say, because we've, uh, we've discussed him before on the pod, I was incredibly excited to see that Nathan Fielder himself 
was uh, sitting behind me in the theater for Barbie. I so. mean, I, I'm, I'm very jealous. The only person Tried behind to, me, yeah, <laughs> should have gotten him on the show to get his takes. The, the only person behind me was a was a mom with a very confused eight year old. But, oh, but no. we'll we'll <laughs> we'll leave it there. Um, and and right now I'm going to give the signal. I think we're both going to give the signal to Kelly, producer Kelly, if he's coming back, and he'll probably clean up this audio. But in any case, um, I think that's a fine place to leave it. Uh, everybody's got our take. We're, we're fully on record. Clearly, if you were on the fence about seeing Barbie or Oppenheimer, now listening to Pro say you have your answer, you should probably go. You got to um, do it. So uh, thank you so much for being with me again here, Haley, both for, for the rest of the show and let's, let's be serious for the Barbenheimer segment. Thank you, Alex. All right. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Britton Eakin, and our contributing reporter this week, Jessica Corso. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Say, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That really helps other people find the show, which we, that's kind of the object of the whole enterprise here. And if you want to read more about anything that we've talked about today, please head to our website. That is law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we will see you again next week.